Hi, and welcome to Sidewalk Talk. I'm Steve Fortunato. This podcast is, is about storytelling, stories of inspiration, information, and education. And uh, this particular episode, we are going to talk about our, uh, our first responders, our heroes, and how they can be helped because, you know, they need help too. And uh, joining me now is Gerald Mishu. Uh, Mr. Mishu is the executive director of the Low Country Firefighter Support Team in North Charleston, South Carolina. It's a counseling program dedicated to supporting emergency personnel and their families. Sir, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. So tell us about it. Uh, tell us what it is that, that you guys do. Um, the Low Country Firefighter Support Team actually began back in 2007 when on June 18th of that year, we lost nine Charleston, South Carolina firefighters in a, where, a furniture warehouse store. Um, the morning after the city um, of Charleston reached out to our local Department of Mental Health and asked for some counseling for their firefighters and their families. Well, we, we had no sort of program like that in place in South Carolina and Charleston, or pretty much anywhere at that time, except some of the bigger cities. So the Department of Mental Health started sending um, clinicians, they had picked three clinicians, put them on the team, if you will, and started sending those clinicians out to the firehouses paired with a local firefighter to check with people to see how they were doing and see what was going on and what they might have needed. Uh, it, it just simply didn't work because the clinicians could not make the connection. There was an awful lot of raw emotions involved at, at that time right after the fire and People just didn't want to talk, and so they came back and regrouped and decided that they were going to approach it in a different manner. And so they reached out to me. I was retired from the fire service. They reached out to me and asked me if I would come back and help put this team together because they knew I had been in the fire service in this area for a very long time and had retired. And my, I guess a lot of folks knew me, and so they knew I had name recognition, if you will, and they wanted to use my ability for what I had to get them in with the fire service culture, to teach them, to teach the clinicians about the fire service culture and to be the door opener, so to speak, to get the firefighters to come to the clinicians or the clinicians to go to them. So we uh, were being funded and uh, supported by the city of Charleston proper. There are 14, 15 fire departments in Charleston County separately from the city of Charleston. City of Charleston was supporting this program for their people. So initially we were the Charleston Firefighter Support Team. And that went on for several years. And as, as we continued to grow and to help people, we were getting a lot of folks coming from outside departments and outside agencies looking for help because there was no other first responder help available. So um, at that point in time, the city of Charleston gave us the um, permission, if you will, to spread out and to offer assistance to other departments as a way of giving back to them for what they had done for Charleston during the tragedy. Uh, so we went to, we started taking care of three counties. About a year later, we spread to eight counties. And uh, in 2012, we left the uh, uh, arrangement that we had with the city of Charleston and started a 501c3 nonprofit. And we changed our name to the Low Country Firefighter Support Team to more reasonably uh, represent who we were taking care of. 
after those eight counties, we didn't spread out, and we now take care of 23 counties in the lower part of South Carolina, which is exactly half of the state. Uh, we have another team uh, that we were on, and we did help start some years ago, uh, called the uh, FAST team, the Firefighter Assistance and Support Team. And they serve not only down here in our area and help people down here, but they also do an excellent job of taking care of people in the other 23 counties of our state. So it's kind of a combined program, even though we are totally separate and funded totally differently. What I understand you also, there's situations all around the country and, and, and they reach out to you because of the, the type of work that you're doing. And I guess when it comes down to it, then it's, it's, it's you're being a hero to our heroes, right? So, um, you know, um, these first responders, emergency personnel, they're human. Uh, and they, they see some stuff um, and things happen that uh, that's not easy, right? So I'm, I'm guessing, so tell me about some of the, I don't know, what the support programs that you do offer and how do you, let me, let me move on because, you know, firefighters are supposed to be tough guys, tough women, you know, it's, it's a tough thing. I don't really need help. I can handle this myself. I'm assuming you run into that a lot. I'm also assuming there are a, there's a, there are a lot of people uh, struggling and in pain and families. So how do you get them to uh, go ahead and ask for help? Well, there's, there's several components to that. Number one, we, um, structure our program to uh, try to break the stigma of reaching out for help. Uh, probably our first year, we spent most of our time breaking the stigma and encouraging people and gaining their confidence to get them to reach out and ask for help because nobody would. Uh, it just wasn't something that you did. I mean, even in my career, my working career, we never had a program like this. And so we were always taught to suck it up. And if you couldn't suck it up, you might want to find another profession, Will. We quickly learned after the Charleston 9 tragedy that, that wasn't the case. The uniqueness, if you will, if there's anything unique about us, is that we, we take care of the entire fire department family. Not only the firefighters working on the trucks and in the stations, but we take care of their wives and their husbands and their children and anybody uh, in, in their life that needs to have support. Because we believe in order to take care of our first responders, our firefighters, um, appropriately, we need to take care of the people at home to take care of them. So we have a lot of family members in our program. But the other significant thing is, this is not a CISM program, Critical and Stress Management Program. We have some components that are one and the same, but typically we um, help more people with everyday problems in their lives than we do the ones that go to bad calls. We do respond to those who have uh, PTSD and other problems from bad calls. We do um, we do go to actual bad calls and we'll be on the scene sometimes if needed. But we specialize, and that's kind of an unusual word to use in this case, but we focus our attention on taking care of the individual people. Can you give me an example? How, that, how does that work? Well, for instance, if we, uh, if a firefighter comes to talk to us, someone on the peer team, and we find out what's troubling him the most is he's having marital problems. Mm -hmm. Well, if we get into that a little bit deeper, we sometimes find out that his marital problems are caused by financial issues or him drinking too much or some of those things. So we try to provide support for all of those issues. We have people, we have counselors who specialize in marriage counseling. 
We have financial advisors on our team that we can refer people to to help them with budgeting and those kinds of things. So we try to create a program that create or that treats, if you will, the, the root problem. And um, all along the way, all throughout the day and months and weeks, we still have those issues where firefighters are injured or, or we have pediatric deaths or we have some other kinds of calls that really stir people up. And we've also found out through my own experience that uh, a lot of us, particularly the ones who've been in the fire service for a while, have years worth of bad experiences in their minds that they never had a chance to talk about or deal with or what we call process. And so we sometimes will go back with people, I've gone back with people as far as 15 years to reach out to them and to dig out a problem that they've been suffering from. And our clinicians are very good at that. They have some therapies that they do that can really bring people out of the uh, darkness that they're in. Um, in addition to that, we've had, we now take care of EMS and 911 telecommunicators. Uh, we actually have special teams for EMS and 911 communicators. And our peer team members on those particular teams work in those disciplines. They're paramedics, they're 911 telecommunicators, and then we have firefighters on our firefighter team. Altogether, the three teams have about 70 peer counselors. Of those 70 peer counselors, um, they're spread all over the 23 counties of our state that we take care of. And we have 20 clinicians who work on our team. Uh, all of them have agreed to join our team and to give of their services. And the only requirement is that they, um, they must go through a training with us to teach them the fire and EMS culture. Uh, so they come to Charleston, spend several days with us, and we take them through all kinds of training scenarios. Um, and it's, it's been exceptionally well received because the clinicians love an opportunity to learn about the clients that they serve. And one of the things that I did in the early days was teach them the lingo, the language, the culture of the fire service because they, they, they would have firefighters coming in talking to them and they kind of didn't really understand what they were talking about, using our jargon and our lingo and all the things that we use. So it's been a growing process, and we have 20, as I said, wonderful clinicians who have dedicated themselves to our first responders, and, and they're doing an amazing job. That's volunteer? Uh, well, we, uh, we, file, we have an insurance plan, and they filed insurance for the people, and if we have a, a situation where insurance won't pay or the insurance won't step up then we have other avenues small grants uh, people who contribute and other ways and to you know to get them help gotcha so i guess my number one takeaway is your your support group um a lot of what you've had to do is make make first responders aware of your existence and then buy into how you can help them and you're there as a, um, I'll say a resource then, really, you have multiple resources, right? You have multiple things that you can help them with. So Jane Doe is in, um, isn't in South Carolina. Um, and she, ha she, she needs some help, you know, whatever it is. And uh, she's a firefighter. What does she, you know, where does she go? I mean, you're just, you're in South Carolina. I know some people, is there somewhere, is there something like this in every state in the country? There isn't, but it's, but it's fast getting there. I mean, we have uh, Illinois, um, Florida, uh, North Carolina, some to come to mind immediately who have wonderful teams. We, we're very fortunate to be uh, partnered with them, so to speak. 
what we've done is a lot and researching and finding clinicians to be on our team when we when we need a clinician in a certain area we have a website that we can go to and we can research any licensed clinician in that area okay. and we look for what they specialize in and what their criteria what they um what their experience is in and then we call them and make an appointment to go and talk to them so we several of us on the team will go and sit down and have a discussion with them to find out if we think they'd be a good fit for our team um, and then we ask them to join us and typically most of them do well, we further extended that outside of South Carolina by going to a national website and doing the very same thing. And so many times we'll get a call from somebody out of state. An example, um, I got a call from Nebraska a couple of weeks ago. Firefighter there having a lot of difficulty uh, needing to see a clinician without question. We provided him as much peer support as we could provide him over the phone. And sometimes that's sufficient. Sometimes we can talk back and forth on the phone and give them some um, support and get them to a better place. But we went into our database and located a couple of clinicians in Nebraska, close to where this person lived. We called a clinician, explained the situation to them. They contacted the client and made an appointment and they're getting their clinical care in Nebraska. And all we did is make that connection. We've had calls from Puerto Rico. We've had calls from Massachusetts, California, Arizona, Texas. I mean, because um, if a person Googles uh, firefighter support on the internet, they will, we're usually in the first to top five of those listings. And so people call us and uh, it doesn't really explain exactly where we are. So they call us and we have done quite a bit of work that way. And um, sometimes, you know, sometimes people just need somebody to talk to. And people, we have a, an adage we use on our team that's, is that people don't want to be fixed. They want to be heard. So if you can give them an opportunity to be heard and you can be a listening ear for them, it's amazing how much good you can do. People don't want to be fixed. They want to, want be, to heard. be heard. Yeah, that's great. Um, when, you, when they do want to be heard, and, and, and I know every case is different, um, what kinds of things do they want to be, what, what are they, what are they saying? What are you running into when they do reach out? I know all the services that you offer, but what is, is there a more of one service required when they reach out? What do they want to tell you? What are they talking about? What are their difficulties? Well, most of the time when we're contacted by out of state people, it will be something that's job related. It will be a pediatric death mm -hmm. or it'll be multiple calls. We, we've also learned, that it's not necessarily just one call. It could be a series of calls that accumulated over a period of years. And then they have one call that really kind of breaks that open. And then they begin to have a lot of problems with all these memories and things coming back. I know I've had it myself, so I know how it feels. Um, and so we, that's one of the things we do. We look for clinicians in their area that have the uh, kind of training that we believe they need to have in order to take care of folks like that. Um, and it, it's been pretty successful. We also are very good about following up with people. We make a point to put it on our calendar. If I talk to John Smith in, in, um, in Iowa today, I'll, I'll put it in my calendar for two weeks after I, after we connect him with someone, I'll check on him in two weeks to see how he's doing and see if sometimes we need to make an adjustment. Sometimes he's, he didn't have a good fit with the clinician. So we find him a different one. Uh, it just depends. Sometimes he just needs to talk to another firefighter. 
and we can always fill that bill. Or we, you know, we can put a dispatcher there, we can put a um, paramedic there, um, and they feel comfortable about talking to us. We're, we're talking with uh, Gerald Mishu, the executive director of the Low Country Firefighter Support Team. They're based in, uh, in North Charleston, South Carolina. 25 years a firefighter, now retired. And you mentioned that you have empathy for what a lot of these, uh, what a lot of um, these first responders are going or struggling with because you had the same struggles. So a lot of these things weren't available to you back then. How have you been able to get the help that you need? Well, I'm very fortunate on this team. Uh, we have access to our clinicians all the mm -hmm. time. Uh, and we have much, um, probably a little quicker access to them than the average person would because we call them and make referrals. If we see someone in a peer-to-peer -peer relationship and we realize that they're above what we're able to provide for them, then we'll suggest to them that we refer them to a clinician. So then we call and talk to our clinicians and make the proper referral. Um, some of our clinicians do well with children. Some of our clinicians do well with marriage counseling. Some of our clinicians are better than others with grief counseling and that sort of thing. So we try to make a referral to people we think will fit that bill. Mm -hmm. And the only way we know that is we have to work with them and get to know them on a personal basis. Mm -hmm. We have equine therapy. We have two farms in, in our part of the state where we can refer to people with PTSD and other issues to farms to work with horses, a much less traditional way of counseling, but it's, it's very good for people that are nervous about about the uh, formal setting of a counseling office. I see. So um, it's just a matter of trying to get the right fit. And it's a, it's a matter of encouraging people not to get discouraged if they don't think they have the right fit. We don't change clinicians often, but it happens once in a while. And we'll send them um, to a different clinician or the clinician they're seeing will refer them somewhere else. That's the beauty of our program is we have a wonderful relationship with our mental health clinicians and they understand the need that, you know, first responders are a little bit different. And, you know, we kind of have to um, lead them by the hand sometimes to get them what they need. But uh, one, of, one of the biggest successes of our program has been those people who have gotten help and then gone back to the firehouse or the EMS station and encouraged their friends to get help. Sure. Sometimes their referrals grow out of those kind of things. And that's where our emphasis is right now on the peer side of our team is self-care and encouraging people to watch out for each other. Matter of fact, 2021 is going to be our year to really push forward with self-care and taking care of one another. Because it's if you and I are peer counselors mm -hmm. and we get called to a firehouse where they've had a pediatric death, we could go in there and there may be five or six people working in the firehouse that day. And we can sit down and talk to them, but unless we know them very personally or we see them on a regular basis, we won't know exactly how they react to a bad situation. But all of those other people in there will, because they eat with them, they sleep in the same room with them, they ride the trucks together, they put their lives on the line. They're going to know when somebody's not acting just like they should. And so we are encouraging people. And we also we have a training division in our team where we have instructors that go out and teach behavioral health programs. And we teach first responders to be quasi-peers, so to speak, to watch out for each other, to take care of each other, and to notice when something's just not right. Yeah, there's definitely success with that and a lot of help from some great folks. So you guys have a uh, 
whether they're in South Carolina or Alabama or Michigan, it's a brotherhood and sisterhood. Yes. Uh, a real brotherhood and sisterhood. And so what it sounds like to me, it's really smart here. You're, you're taking advantage of that. You're leveraging that brotherhood and sisterhood to help each other. You're Absolutely. saying, you just pay attention because even you're all tough, you know, but you're also all human. And so who would know better than the people you spend all this time with? And if you identify something, point it out, right? It's just like regular society too. When you're with your family or your friends, um, people are hopefully becoming more aware of, um, of difficult situations or unusual uh, personality shifts or whatever it is, right? I'm assuming that's what you're talking about. Yes. So, um, you know, COVID has been uh, uh, obviously caused quite a bit of anxiety in, in 2020. At the time of this recording is November 4th of, of 2020. Uh, election um, are, actually has not been decided yet. So there's a lot of anxiety about that. So there's a lot of anxiety within our country uh, in 2020. Have, has that, has that caught in, in with first responders? Have you noticed it been even more difficult for, for them as well? Absolutely, absolutely, without question. And there's, it's multifaceted. Uh, one one example would be, a lot of first responders are are spun up and ramped up, because they're concerned about catching COVID and taking it home to their families, and so they have they have much stronger requirements than just putting on a mask to go into a restaurant. They have to wear um, personal protective gear, totally different from what they normally wear. They have to scrub up, mask up, and do all the things because they run a lot of VMS calls. So, you know, typically. Most of our fire departments around here, around 70, maybe even a little bit higher, 70, 75% of their calls are medical calls, even though they're firefighters. And so they get exposed to it on quite a, a good basis. We've had a lot of friends and fire and EMS uh, here in our community who have gotten COVID from responding to, to calls involving it. Other thing is the anxiety of just not knowing what tomorrow's gonna bring. I mean, we don't know when, how much longer we got to wear a mask and how much longer we got to be doing all these um, precautions. And it really, you know, has stopped everything cold as far as um, social events and ball games and birthday parties and large gatherings of people. And everybody's just really, really tired of it. And uh, it, it shows, you know, all of our first responders are absolute human beings like everybody else. And they want to get out there and do their job and do it well, but at the same time, it, it bothers them and it worries them. And, you know, some departments are faced with reduction in force. Some departments, because of the, uh, particularly here in the Charleston area, and we haven't had that much reduction in force in the fire departments. But Charleston, you know, the economy of Charleston thrives on the tourism industry. And there hasn't been much of that this year. Right. And so what happens is, how does that affect the fire department? Well, most cities, all cities, as a matter of fact, get a, um, a tax appropriation from the tourism and restaurant industry. And when the money's not being spent, it's not being div divvied back out to the local organizations. Mm -hmm. So most of the fire departments have had to reduce their budgets, cut their budgets. And while they haven't had any layoffs to speak of, they have... Uh, um, put some hirings on hold and some increase in personnel on hold. So there is a multifaceted problem. Uh, for instance, people getting help with us, people calling us and wanting to meet with us 
we had to be very careful with that to start with. Our clinicians almost went into shutdown because of it, and then we got telehealth involved, and all of our clinicians are able to see people like you and I are sitting here talking yeah. through Zoom or through uh, telehealth. And so we've been able to keep up the clinical side of it, and we have done with Zoom, we have been able to keep up the peer team side. But it's, um, you know, have much better effect with people person to person, and, you know, instead of doing it over a, over a telephone or a computer. But we've adapted. We've adapted to that. Our clinicians have adapted to it. Our peer team has adapted to it. And uh, we're we're looking forward to getting back out and being in a classroom with people and teaching people and sharing sharing information with people because that's how our team grows is working with people because a lot of good folks out there and when every time we get somebody else involved in the program reaching out to get help in the program we feel like we've made a success. If so, if there's a a first responder who whether it's a uh, it was a tough, tough, tough couple of calls, one tough call, or it's just, um, you know, struggling in, in, in personal life and, and just whatever, whatever, which a lot of people have different struggles. What, what should they do? I mean, help inspire them, you know, give, tell me some, um, obviously you can't name names and stuff, but give me, an, uh, give me a success story of someone um, that you guys that you guys helped and maybe that success story would would get that person that's like oh, I don't need help you know to say maybe I do need help and reach out to you or to somebody for help well when it comes to mind is we we have a program within our team called operation Z like Z like sleeping mm-hmm. and operation Z is a program where we make weighted blankets we make weighted blankets for first responders and it is because we we learned early on in this program that when people would come into a clinician's office or come to see us in our peer team office probably nine out of ten of them would say they realized they were having issues when they couldn't sleep mm. they lay awake all night they'd sleep a small amount of time all night and you know once if you're a young man um you can do that for a for a week or so but if you, um, you know, if you're 40 years old on the job or 35 years old on the job, my goodness, if you're like me, you can't go more than about one night and then you get yourself in trouble. So we were doing an autism event. We, we have a community outreach program within our team. And we were doing an autism event one day and we had some fire department children there. And we found a brochure that talked about using weighted blankets to calm autistic children. So we came back home and talked to my wife who, is, who sews. And I said, can you make me a couple of these blankets and let us try them? And so we did, and we gave them to certain people to try. Uh, The most success that we've had with it is we had a police officer, uh, 27 years on the job, was really struggling with PTSD, medicated, seeing the counselor regularly, just couldn't sleep. And so he came to us and said, can I please get a blanket? So we made him a blanket. He said, let me show you my sleep pattern from this past Friday night. And he held up his, um, his watch and he had tracked his sleep pattern. And the graph on there looked like an EKG. The most he had slept for any extended period of time during that whole night was an hour and 15 minutes. Then he would wake up, stay awake a while, go back to sleep. I said, take this blanket, go home and use it. Do not track your sleep. 
right. for at least four nights. Sleep with it for four nights. Get accustomed to it. it's going to be a little warmer than normal. Or get accustomed to the weight. After you've gotten yourself settled with it and you're 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 comfortable with it, then track your sleep patterns. He called me at the end of the next week, and he said it was amazing the difference he made. He said I tracked my sleep last night for the first time. I couldn't wait to call and tell you. I slept six and a half hours without waking up. That's great. Uh, and that was 300 blankets ago. My wife has sold oh. 300 blankets since then. And we put them in dispatch offices. So when our dispatchers, our telecommunicators are having stressful calls, like um, teaching somebody how to do CPR over the telephone with an infant or police are getting shot at and they're talking to them on the radio, they can take those small, what we call lap size, wrap them around their shoulders and lay them across their laps and it helps calm them down. We've also put them in our clinician office. All of our clinicians have them. So that if they, when somebody comes in, they're ramping up already and coming into a formal counseling session and get some more nervous and stressed, they take those blankets and lay them across. Those are the kind of success stories that we live for. We have had um, too many people who have threatened suicide and we've intervened. Uh, we've taken them. Sometimes we'll go out in the middle of the night and find them wherever they are. Uh, and sometimes that's a chore to get them to tell you where they are. But we've taken them out of the woods uh, and put them in a car and driven them to the hospital. Uh, one guy that was just really struggling went into the hospital. Once he was done with an inpatient, we got him into a program with one of our clinicians. He's now made rank. He's now got married. He now has two children. He's probably a shining example of the kind of success that we hope for. That's awesome. There's a, there's a lot of different ways. Yeah, congratulations. That's 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 great. That's what I was looking for. And hopefully, hopefully, it can connect if it just connects with one person, we can help them out, uh, get them get them to you, and you can get them the help they need. That would be that would be great. Tell me about Fat Babies Junkyard Dogs. They have a Facebook page. I know you are on it. You're on it a lot. Um, they support you. Uh, to tell tell me. Tell me why somebody should uh, check that out. Fat Babies Junkyard Dogs on Facebook. Well, Fat Baby, number one, is uh, our PD, our Florence area um, regional coordinator for our team. Very good at his work. He's a retired lieutenant in the fire department. Uh, outstanding individual, loved by everybody that knows him. He's just the kind of guy that can, I mean, he could run with a pack of wolves and calm him down. Mm. So his name is um, Lee Hopkins. So Lee came up with this um, idea that he wanted to do something different to engage people just to talk about what they loved about the fire service, because there's so much going on now with, with the politics of the world and, uh, and, and within the fire service itself, the politics of the fire service, including all the standards and trainings and requirements that are put down on these young people now, not saying those aren't necessary and those aren't needed, but sometimes it's a rough go just to keep up with training and physical standards and those kinds of things. And as, as old dogs, junkyard dogs, <laughs> Lee, myself, and a whole bunch of other guys who started out in the fire department and, and worked in the fire department back in the day when you really got in there and just got the job done. Uh, people say, well, y'all just took a chance and you risk your life. Well, I mean, we're still here. Yeah. So we were smart enough to know what to do. But he wanted to create a forum, a blog, if you will, to encourage people just to come and sit and talk and 
let's talk about the good things in the fire service in the EMS. So let's talk about the, the great things. So Lee always had a, when he was in the fire service, I'm telling his secrets now, if he's watching this, I'm gonna be in trouble. He, he always ate little Debbie cakes. He loved little Debbie cakes. <laughs> so we started, they started calling him Fat Baby. <laughs> when he was trying to find a name for this program, he said, I think I'm going to call it Fat Babies, but what am I going to call it Fat Baby? I said, well, you know, back in the day, they mm -hmm. used to call us a bunch of junkyard dogs. A junkyard dog is somebody that's mean, that's aggressive, who's willing to do what they got to do to protect whatever they're protecting. And uh, I think somewhere back in my career when I was young, I was called a junkyard dog. I said, junkyard dogs, how about that? So it caught on, and so Fat Baby's junkyard dog was born. He picks up new person each year, uh, each week to interview. He picks a junkyard dog of the day every day to put on his blog. Uh, we've had some pretty amazing um, sessions where he's interviewed people and let, just let people talk about the good things in the fire service. There's a lot of good things that you guys do. Uh, and uh, I think it's, it's, it's overlooked quite often and quite often underappreciated. So I appreciate you, everything that you uh, did before retirement and in retirement, because you've been doing this a long time too. So your dedication uh, to first responders is, is duly noted and appreciated. That is Fat Baby's Junkyard Dogs. Fat Baby's Junkyard Dogs. Check them out on Facebook. It's a Facebook yep. page. And, and uh, uh, yeah, he posts something every day and highlights a, something good. Um, in the business. And I think that's, uh, that's always good too. So uh, uh, Gerald Mishu, the executive director of low country firefighter support team. Um, if you or, you know, a loved one you think uh, needs some help, or if you just want to learn more about what's going on, it's firefightersupport.org, firefightersupport.org. Gerald, you're cool if I give out your email, your direct email address if somebody wants to. I got it. It's, it's Gerald, G-E-R, right? G-E-R-A-L-D at firefightersupport.org. That's Gerald at firefightersupport.org. I also have a phone number that I'll give if someone wants to call. It's 843-609-8300. That's 843-609-8300. 8300 again firefightersupport.org you're a first responder anything you're you're struggling you are not alone you can get help and because of people like mr mishu um it's there for you and you should take advantage of it um and and yes they're in south carolina but wherever you are in the country check them out and then they could point you in the right direction correct mr mishu that is absolutely correct. We'd love to help anybody that needs it. Yeah, that's, that's, well, I mean, that's what you guys do as, that's what you do as a profession. I mean, that's what first responders are doing. They all go to help. That's what they have in their blood. You guys just in the DNA, you want to help people. That's what you do for, for a career. And that's what you've done uh, your whole lives. And, and, and now it's time to recognize that just because you're there to always help people doesn't mean you don't need help too. And so if, if you need any kind of help, I really highly encourage you. Hopefully it'll inspire you to act. Um, or if it's someone you know that needs the help, no matter what it is, check them out, firefightersupport.org. 
And uh, look, man, the, let's see how they can help you out. Because uh, as all, all people need help, even the people that help others need help. And so I really appreciate you, Mr. Mishu. I appreciate uh, all the people on your team with Low Country Firefighter Support Team. I congratulate you on the success. Uh, it's, it's been a, a amazing. I know you've helped a lot of people uh, and, and obviously gave us a couple of success stories. But what you guys do and the dedication that you have is greatly appreciated. Gerald Mishu, Executive Director, Low Country Firefighter Support Team. Thanks for what you do and thanks for giving us the time uh, today you, and talking to us. All right, continued good luck, okay? Thank you, sir. All right, so uh, that is it for this edition of Sidewalk Talk. You can download all of our Sidewalk Talk podcasts uh, on your podcast platform of choice. You can also visit our website, uh, shovelthesidewalk.com and see any of our, of our podcasts uh, there's a link there. And if you, if you have a story like Mr. Mishu's or uh, if you have a story of someone you know that, that needs to be shared, it's a story of inspiration, information, education, there's a, there's a form on our website you can fill out. We'll get back to you and we'll put you on a future podcast. So thanks again, Mr. Mishu. Thank you out there for listening, watching, and participating. I'm Steve Fortunato, and this has been Sidewalk Talk.